You're listening to the Monash Arts Podcast. Our, our, our position is actually pretty precarious, but there's a huge desert in the middle of the continent. Most of us don't actually live in the desert. Um, we actually live on these low-lying coastal plains, which and a, a one-meter rise in sea level is going to create absolute havoc with where we live. I mean, this is where we mainly live, in the coastal cities. And they're not that much higher than a metre or two above sea level. My name's Andrew Milner, and I'm an emeritus professor of English and Comparative Literature in the School of Languages, Literatures, Cultures and Linguistics in the Faculty of Arts. What I'm working on, the book I'm working towards, uh, that's on climate change and science fiction. A lot of science fiction, especially especially written science fiction. A lot of it is about Earth's future, their utopias and dystopias. And the reason the term cli-fi exists is because in the last 20 years or so, there's been, there have been quite a lot of science fiction novels and quite a few films too, which actually imagine the effects of climate change on our immediate future. Well, I think science fiction is a more a reflection of society and of science, but, but also of, of political and social realities. I think most science fiction writers, most writers, clearly what they write about is, is the world in which they live, even if it's disguised as some other planet or some other time. But nonetheless, um, uh, for science fiction in particular, precisely because there is this focus on science and technology, it tends to connect with, with problems that scientists identifies problems, either ones that scientists make, like, like the, the danger of nuclear power uh, or a nuclear war, um, but all, all problems that they, that they identify that they haven't really made, which is actually the, like, like anthropogenic global warming. But the science fiction, I think, it's part of the debate. It's part of popularising, in many ways, ideas that, are, that when, when, when they stay in the form of scientific papers, uh, they're, they're not very accessible. One of the things science fiction does do is popularise technical questions that preoccupy scientists. There's a feedback loop, though. And there's no doubt that science fiction affects... You know, and ideas are picked up from science fiction and taken into the real world. You know, I mean, a lot of the astro American astronauts, who were, the ones who flew, actually did indeed say they were Star Trek fans. You know, there is a loop between NASA and Star Trek, you know. But what I think science fiction does do is allow for a popular but nonetheless rather more informed approach than you often find in, 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 in everyday discussions, actually. I mean, the basic point of fiction is to entertain, let's be honest. But it has other things as well. It entertains, but it educates. It's not its primary goal, but it does. Well, because science fiction is a future-oriented genre, um, what, I, what I think is particularly important about it, if there is any one place in our culture where... People aren't experts, but you know, people who are not idiots either. <laughs> people speculate about how our world could become better or worse than I think that's in science fiction. I think science fiction brings to our culture the most developed accounts of better worlds and worse worlds, better futures and worse futures. And it's still, it is still entertainment, but it's entertainment that, is, that, that, that makes you think. I've been at Monash since 1980, which is which sounds, which is, sounds like an eternity, but but now yeah, I'm 
quite like it. You know, there you go. <laughs> Why move <laughs> when people when 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 you, if you if you like what you're doing? But um, what what um, how did I get to science fiction? Well, I'd always been interested in science fiction. That's the short answer. Um, first thing I remember reading there was a comic strip in in the in a comic called The Eagle, uh, uh, which came out weekly in England uh, when I was very little. And the front page was it was was it was a story of Dan Dare, pilot of the future, and that's why I bought, that's why I read the comic. It was that strip that I wanted to read. Uh, I, I think you find lots of little boys and quite a few little girls of my age liked um, like Dan Dare. And the rest of the comic was okay, but Dan Dare was fantastic. What I'm looking at is how these climate fictions, how they represent the climate change. The classification I've got is basically one you would apply to non-fictional debates about climate change. At one extreme, you've got kind of the deep ecology, green stuff. And that basically says that, well, the planet will survive. We may not with it. And the other extreme is the denial that there is a problem. So in between, you've got things that mirror the debates about climate change in the, in the real world. But then the core of it is about adaptation, as distinct from mitigation and as distinct from denial and as distinct from deep ecology. And adaptation is how will we, as a species, uh, adapt to the changing circumstances, assuming that global warming is actually happening. Really, I'm mapping the different types of responses. If you think about that, it's five, five types of utopia. So I've got five types of, of, of utopia, dystopia, five types of climate responses. That gives me a logical, well, this is very boring, but it gives me 25 possible um, positions. And I'm mapping, trying to map which, which ones are coming out where. Simple dystopias are probably the most common response. And there are problems with that. The pictures of the future that they portray are really pretty bleak. And I know the justification for that is it's a warning. You know, we're warning against something in the hope of preventing it happening. But if, if there's no hope in the novel, no hope in the film, then I suspect that, that is, it's formally less interesting than if there is some element of hope inside the novel. But it's also, I would have thought, politically, less likely to have positive effects. I'm not sure that scaring people is enough. I think some of the most interesting fiction is the stuff that tries to combine a realistic understanding of the dangers, but also with some kind of cautious optimism about our chances to deal with them. The ones that I found interesting, most interesting, are the ones which actually try to address the question of how we will positively adapt and, and, and acquire some hope in, in realistically depicted accounts of a, of a future that, that, that will be warmer and where the sea levels will rise. Climate has, has appeared in science fiction almost since science fiction's beginnings in the 19th century. But what is interesting about the most recent wave is the extent, I, I think, the extent to which it's tied up with real-world scientific concerns about anthropogenic global warming. In the 19th century, most of the 19th century, extreme weather events, let's call them that, right, they tend to be floods. Now, actually, that's not coming from science. It's a reworking of Genesis. It's coming from the Bible. Western science fiction is produced in, you know, especially in France and England originally, and these are countries where the, the Genesis story, everybody knows it. So world-destroying floods, that's what you get in the 19th century. 
In the 20th century, you get quite a lot of science fiction, stories, novels, short stories, which is about freezing, um, about the idea of the world getting cooler. Now, that, in fact, interestingly enough, that does connect with real-world scientific concerns because for most of the 20th century, scientists weren't worried about warming. They were worried that we were about to enter a new ice age, which, in geological terms, we are. And it's only really in the late 20th century that scientists start to worry seriously about global warming, anthropogenic, human-made global warming. And that might more than offset the long-term trend toward freezing, actually. And that is really picked up in the science fiction, in the late 20th, early 21st century, which imagines that we have created global warming. I started from the assumption that the way climate fiction would be distributed geographically would be roughly the same as science fiction in general. So I'd be overwhelmingly concentrated in America, Britain, France, so on, the ones I've just mentioned. But actually, as far as novels are concerned at any rate, there's a lot of climate fiction coming from places that I hadn't quite expected it, you know, which, which you would say are not at the core, but at the periphery of the system. And Australia is one of those places. So is Canada, but also Finland is another one. Uh, there's a lot of Finnish stuff, which I think is interesting. Um, and, uh, and and there's a huge amount of German climate fiction, which which really... I'd, I mean, uh, Germany is not is not a minor science fiction nation. It's not one of the core ones. But there seems to, it seems to be overrepresented. So one of my hypotheses, which, which may turn out to be completely wrong, is that maybe the presence of kind of green parties in politics, as they are in Germany and Australia, maybe that has forced more attention on these issues. So I think I think Australians are actually more preoccupied with climate change than some other people. If you look at that, our, our, our position is actually pretty precarious. But there's a huge desert in the middle of the continent. Most of us don't actually live in the desert. Um, we actually live on these low-lying coastal plains, which and a, a one-metre rise in sea level is going to create absolute havoc with where we live. A huge amounts of... Of, of, of our coastal cities. I mean, this is where we mainly live, in, the co in coastal cities. And they're not that much higher <laughs> than a metre or two above sea level. So between the flooded coastal plain and the expanding desert, you have a potentially extremely precarious situation. And I think Australians are very conscious of this. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking to British friends. They sort of say, well, so it gets warmer, so what? It's freezing cold here all the time. <laughs> But I think you know we we are routinely exposed to to bushfires and increasingly to floods. We have extreme weather weather events, and I think Australians have, can, the thought that we get many more of them, much longer bushfire seasons, many more floods. I think that's something that's sheeted home into 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 Australian consciousness. The deep theoretical model, which I wasn't going to bore you with, is called world systems theory. Uh, uh, and it works with the idea that there's a core and a periphery and a semi-periphery of, of the world economic system, but also the world literary and cultural system as well. Uh, and that's why you, you do have to pay disproportionate attention to the United States and Britain and France. And to some extent, Russia uh, and, and Japan and China as well, although they're, they're kind of special cases. But um, because Japan is concentrated on anime and, and manga, you know. Uh, but it has a huge global reach, nonetheless. Um, and China, because the science fiction is very recent, really there isn't much Chinese science fiction until the 1990s. Dystopias are more recent, and they, and they reach their peak, I think, in the 20th century. Uh, there are a lot in the 20th century. 
And it, it's a very good question why. Uh, my own ex- explanation for, for this, frankly, is that, um, that, that whilst there was wonderful progress took place in the 20th century in all sorts of areas, science and technology, the truth is, better is, is, is it, 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 it was also a terrible century. Yeah, um, two world wars, the worst wars ever fought. Uh, the last one ending with the, dis- the obliteration of cities by, by atomic weapons, by nuclear weapons. Uh, there was uh, whole decades of totalitarianism, uh, both, both fascism and, and Stalin, Stalinism in Russia, National Socialism in Germany, fascism in Italy. Um, and uh, and the Great Depression as well, mass unemployment. It was a it was a terrible century. It really, was, well, it, uh, from about nineteen four from nineteen fourteen to nineteen fifty, uh, it really wasn't very good at all. Not certainly not in Europe and, and North America, which had been the centres of 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 of, of, our, of Western civilization. And and it wasn't that great in Australia, right? <laughs> um, and I, but whatever, there are just lots and lots of dystopias. Uh, they're about nuclear war, totalitarianism, uh, and in, and later in the twentieth century, they're often about corporate capitalism as well. If you think about Alien and Blade Runner, things like that, you know, which are dystopias, really. I don't think there are more dystopias, but I think climate fiction has picked up on the already existing dystopian tradition. So yeah, if you're interested in science fiction or interested in climate fiction, yeah, find someone who will supervise it. And a good idea in this particular case, it depends, but it wouldn't, it doesn't hurt. You, what, you, what you need is someone from literature and someone from film, and maybe someone from, from environmental science. Yeah, having having, you, know, you, you don't have to have one supervisor. You can have three, and 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 someone knows about literature and someone about the film and someone knows about the science would be, would be a nice combination actually for a science fiction thesis. Yeah, it would. But don't think it's going to be easy. Just because you like science fiction, it's still going to be hard work, you know.